Hi, everyone. This is Roland Fisher, the lead pastor of Second City Church here in Chicago, Illinois, and we hope you are well. As we've continued to be on lockdown amidst the spread of COVID-19, we hope that you've been able to join us for our stream services and have left encouraged and full of faith in all that our God is able to do and will do for his people and for the nations. Uh, today, as we continue our message series, we are I'm going to continue in the famous last words, the parables of Jesus series, um, but we're going to skip ahead a bit to the time that's particular to where we are today. If you're watching Sunday, uh, April 5th, it's actually a special day in the Christian calendar. It's actually known as Palm Sunday, where we're celebrating Jesus' entry into Jerusalem when he was really declared by the public to be the promised Messiah. And he was really acknowledged as the benevolent king who was coming to rule over the nations. Now, though this is good news, without a doubt, we all realize that uh, as the news has gone out and uh, I guess more and more people are, I guess, degrees separated from those who are being affected by this pandemic that's spreading throughout the world, anxiety levels are on the rise. So today's focus in the midst of celebrating Palm Sunday is going to be to help you in this time. And our focus will be that we will, in fact, be kept in perfect peace when our minds are stayed on Jesus. We will be kept in perfect peace when our minds are stayed on Jesus. And so as we talk through Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about it in three different parts. We're going to talk first about perfect lessons that we can learn from the crucifixion of Jesus, how Jesus' experience on the cross gives us perfect lessons for our trials. Next, we're going to talk about a perfect Savior, how Jesus was shown to be a perfect Savior by what his time on the cross actually accomplished. And finally, we're going to talk about that perfect peace, how we are kept in perfect peace as we rehearse the reality that temporary tragedies can lead to eternal victories in Jesus. So if you have a Bible today, if you would, turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 32 as we pray. Father, we ask you today that as we read your word, your perfect peace would come to every heart that you would open our hearts and minds to understand your word, and that we really see you, Jesus, as the Prince of Peace who reigns over not only this present circumstance, but all nations at all times. God, we honor you and we trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. So starting in verse 32, we have a picture of Jesus going, making his way to the cross after his trial before Pilate, uh, his uh, mockery and beatings uh, that he took um, on his way to his crucifixion. And in verse 32, it says this, As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine, meaning Jesus, to drink, mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on the left. 
And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God, let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again in a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Whether the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this is the Son of God. Now, when we hear this story, we are oftentimes um, impressed by many things that took place there. We're impressed by Jesus' crucifixion and the agony that he went through. We're impressed by the reaction of those who hadn't yet put their faith in him or put their trust in him. But we're also equally uh, impressed by the response once Jesus gave up his spirit, died, and then we saw the response of the people as acknowledging him as he actually was. And so when we break down, first of all, perfect lessons that we can learn from Jesus during his time on the cross, we understand this, that first, Jesus' experience on the cross gives us perfect lessons for our trials. We all know worldwide we're going through trials right now, but we shouldn't think that it's a surprising thing. There was a man named Ernest Becker who was a Pulitzer Prize winning author of a book called The Denial of Death. And he actually said this, I think that taking life seriously means something such as this, that whatever man does on this planet has to be done in the lived truth of the terror of creation, of the grotesque, of the rumble of panic underneath everything. Otherwise, it is false. And though we all have different backgrounds and experiences that we're coming from, when we look at the reality of our present situation, we see this statement as true. And many of us who haven't come from many trials or circumstances where we've had to be on uh, issues such as lockdown before, many of us have never dealt with something like a worldwide pandemic, have never had to really respond biblically to situations like these. But what we see is that lament is truly a biblical response while we prayerfully wait for answers 
from our God and the authorities to tell us what to do. However, at the same time, what we are commanded to do throughout Scripture is not fear. Now, that's a strong statement, and it's a, it's a high uh, task or, or a high ask of us during times like these. But the question is why? Why is the Bible continually commanding us not to fear? Well, when we look at the work of Jesus on the cross, I think we can learn at least four lessons. Number one, it may be a lesson for people who had a past with Jesus or the church, but may have walked away from it. And what we see is that the cross you threw off because you might have been forced to carry it can now become your salvation. There's a man or a pastor named Timothy Keller in uh, New York City who said this about those who once had an experience with the church and walked away. He said, people know instinctively that if Christianity is true, they will lose control and they will not be able to live any way they wish. So they are rooting for it not to be true and are more than willing to accept any objections to the faith that they hear. And this often reminds me of Simon of Cyrene, who was at some level, people, scholars think, a worshiper of God. And like Simon of Cyrene, some of you were forced to carry a faith that was not your own. Simon had to carry a cross that was not his own. It was Jesus' cross. And so even as you were forced to carry a faith that was not your own, you've been tempted to throw it off. You've looked for freedom of thought, freedom of love and pleasures, and really, as a response, all the wrong places. However, what you found is that these detours can leave you damaged and found wanting. The good news of this lesson from the cross, though, is that <clears throat> just as with Simon of Cyrene, the very cross that you're tempted to throw off can become your salvation in times such as these, if you make your way back to God. The second reason or lesson that we learn is we're able to have this hope because God knows everything. What we see in Jesus' representation on the cross is this, that God is not surprised about anything that we experience. Even in the midst of this COVID-19 uh, trial and the, the disaster that's taking place across the nations, we see that God's not surprised about any of it. And how do we know this? Because when we look at the scripture that we just read about Jesus being on the cross, we see that it was prophesied about many years before Jesus ever had to carry his cross. Just as an example, if you liken or uh, you enjoy reading not only the New Testament accounts, but also the Old Testament, you see that there were several Psalms called the Messianic Psalms, which were predicting the coming of Jesus and his work. One in particular was Psalm 22, foreshadowing the person and suffering of Jesus on the way to his salvific work on the cross. It was written by a man named King David, who many scholars think wrote his words between 1010 and 970 BC, a whole millennia before Jesus showed up on the scene. But if you study it, you see that many of the things that were accounted for in Matthew 27 were actually predicted by this man, by the Spirit of God, long before Jesus ever showed up. I'll give you at least four examples. In Psalm 22:18, the scripture reads, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Psalm 22:7 says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. 
Psalm 22, 8 says, he trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And finally, David started the psalm in Psalm 22, 1, saying of God to God, the same thing that Jesus would say on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now, of course, when David was writing this, he was writing about his own experience. But David was, in essence, a type of Christ foreshadowing the ultimate Christ who would come and was predicting the sufferings of Jesus to let us know that God, before anything happens, knows it all. And because God is not surprised by anything, we can be confident of the following, even in the midst of suffering. There was a woman named Corrie ten Boom who said, there is no panic in heaven. Some of you have gone to grocery stores just looking for things like toilet paper, and it seems like there was a panic surrounding you. But the good news is that there is no panic in heaven. God has no problems, only plans. And if we know that he has plans in the midst of our trials, the safest place to be is in right relationship with his Christ and in his hands. Now, this is a challenge to accept when it seems like the third lesson that we look at from this instance of Jesus on the cross is a reality. That the lesson number three is there will be times that it seems like God is not doing anything. Have you ever been there before? I know I have, trusting in God, looking at the chaos around me and saying, God, I'm praying, are you doing anything at all? Well, if we look at the lesson of the scripture, we see that they had to ask the same question when Jesus was on the cross. Going back to verse 39, it said, and those who passed by when Jesus was on the cross derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. And in the midst of that mockery, you would have thought that God would have rended heaven open, come down, struck the mockers down and delivered his son. But he didn't. He allowed his son to stay on that cross and seemingly was doing nothing while he was suffering and dying. And there will be times as a believer where it seems like you may even feel like you've been abandoned by God. When you go through health, financial, or even relational difficulties, it is human to ask the question, where are you, God? Jesus asked the same question. Jesus at the same time, though, knew before going into his trial the plan going in. And that's the interesting thing about it, that though he got to the point in the midst of his suffering and cried out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is with the knowledge of what God was going to do. God the Father was going to do. And he spoke, Jesus meaning he spoke about his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection that would lead to the salvation of the world repeatedly through his ministry. It wasn't like he was unaware of what was coming his way. Yet in the stress and strain of the moment, our emotions cause our perspective on things to get fuzzy. 
when Jesus took on the sin of humanity and for the first time in his existence experienced separation from his heavenly father, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That may be you in this moment when it seems like God is nothing, is doing nothing rather. But don't you fear, God is on the move. And the fourth lesson is basically that people often misunderstand tragedies. In Jesus' instance on the cross, the people who were looking on his suffering, they thought that Jesus was calling out to Elijah. In verse 47, it said that some of the bystanders hearing him cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They said, this man is calling Elijah. They had a misunderstanding of what was actually taking place there. But here is the good news of the gospel in the Bible, that the moment that it seems like God is forsaking his people, in this case, his Christ, that's the very moment when he's working his plan of redemption for the world. The very moment that we see or feel like things are out of control or we don't have a hope in our future, that's the very moment that God Almighty is working to bring the world back to himself. Why do I say this? It's because years later, there was a man named the Apostle Paul who wrote in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 7 through 9, that we impart a secret and a hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. You see, that's speaking about the plan of God, that he knows everything, and what we see unfolding around us is part of his plan, that none of the rulers of the age understood this, for if they had, in Jesus' case, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, no ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. God is always working his redemptive plan if we look to him to be a part. This ultimately leads us to not just the lessons that we learn from Jesus on the cross, but also the fact that we have a perfect Savior that was represented there. So we have perfect lessons that can be learned from his uh, work on the cross, bringing us to the understanding that he's a perfect Savior. And Jesus was shown to be a perfect Savior by what his time on the cross actually accomplished. What do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is we have to ask the question, what happened when Jesus actually died? And what was the significance of what happened when he did? Well, I think that when we study the scripture again, we can see at least three things. Number one, when Jesus died, there was a mention of something there that the veil was torn. The veil was torn. And this act was opening the way to God's presence in what's called the most holy place or the holy of holies. Now, if you don't have an understanding of uh, temple life or worship or uh, Old Testament scripture that might not make sense to you. But there was a man named Andrew Murray in Charisma Magazine several years ago who condensed it a bit for us to give explanation. And he said this, that there was, it, there was in the temple its exterior seen by all men with the outer court into which every Israelite might enter and where all the external religious service was performed. And so in our modern context, that would be like anybody showing up at a church, maybe the church that you visited before all of the lockdown occurred, maybe one you visited with a friend. 
And there was, after that, though, in the midst of the temple, what was called the holy place, into which alone the priest might enter to present God the blood of or the incense, the bread or the oil that they had brought from without. Meaning that's where the religious leaders would go in and make their offerings to God, right? So people who were going a step further got to go into the most holy place. But then there was another place, a third chamber, the inner chamber. Think of Wu-Tang, but we'll, we'll skip that. But, but it's like we enter the chamber, and although near, it said the priests ministering in the holy place were still not within the veil into the immediate presence of God. They could not come. God dwelled in the holiest of all, in a light inaccessible where none might venture. The momentary entering of the high priest once a year only, once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, for those of you who come from a Jewish background, was only to bring into full consciousness the truth that there was no place for man there until the veil was rent and taken away. So when Jesus died, what was actually happening is that veil was torn and then all of a sudden humanity had a chance to be in the presence of Almighty, the living God. And actually not just be a religious people on the outside, but have relationship with their creator in a real and a palpable way, in a dynamic way, not just an academic or an intellectual ascent, but a relational one that happened because of Jesus' death on the cross. We see that also what happened was that the dead were raised. And because Jesus was crucified, the dead can come out of their graves. Now, what's interesting about this is it wasn't all the dead in this case. It wasn't all the dead in this case. If you look with me back at verse 52, it says the tombs also were opened and many bodies, it says very specifically here, of the saints, meaning the people of God who had been waiting for his coming and trusted in him, the people of God, the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Why is Jesus a perfect savior? Because for some of us who've even tried to be faithful throughout the years, we've fallen asleep in our walks with God. We've gotten into the mundane, we've gotten into the ritual, and the fire that used to mark our passion for Jesus has been muffled or died out. But it's moments just like this that reawaken it. Because just as Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected from the dead to bring the dead back to life, he reinvigorates our faith through moments like these. Why? Because we have to trust in him once again, maybe like we haven't had to in months or years. And it reinvigorates us in a way that God says it's for your good. The temporary trial that you're experiencing is in fact leading to your good. The dead were raised by this perfect Savior. And then finally, we see that it wasn't just the saints, but it was also those who were far away who came to saving faith in him. It said in verse 54, when the centurion, who would have been a Gentile, 
a Roman officer during that time who participated in the crucifixion of Jesus when he saw the miracle hand of God. And that is what we're believing for, people of God. We're believing for miracles to break out, not only in our nation, but internationally, to the glory of God, that people, the sick would be healed, the dead would be raised, that people would come from death to life and from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God during this time. And it said, when the centurion, those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were shaken by what was going on around them. It said they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the son of God. Truly, this one has the answers. Truly, in the midst of me dealing with panic and anxiety and a a fear of my future, I see some of these Christians around me who have a supernatural peace. And what they have, I need. What they have, I want. And surely the God they serve must be the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus was crucified in the midst of his trial, we see him as a perfect Savior because not only was he awakening the dead, he was also bringing those who did not know him, who were far away, to a saving faith in him. That believer is what he's doing today. And if you don't know him today, this is your opportunity to come. He's shaking your life shaking all that's going on around you so that you can see truly he is the son of God. And when we acknowledge this, whether as a believer who's been walking with him for years or somebody who's just making a decision for him, what we see is that we have an opportunity to come into his perfect peace. And we are kept in perfect peace as we rehearse the reality that temporary tragedies can in fact lead to eternal victories in Jesus. Now, I started off by talking that about the fact that the Bible says over and over again, do not be afraid. God gives a command to his people, do not fear. The phrase, do not be afraid, is recorded at least 365 times in the Bible. Pretty interesting, right? How many days of the year are there? 365. How many times does he tell us not to fear? 365. (laughs) He said, every day you can look to me and be kept in my perfect peace. And I think another thing that Corey ten Boom rings true when we think about that command and that exhortation from God. She said this, that if you look at the world, you'll ultimately be distressed. And I don't know about you, but every time I hear a ding on my phone, it's a news report, an update on how many people have gotten sick or how many people have passed because of the spreading virus. And if I'm only looking at that, that can be disconcerting. But she went on to say, if you look within, you'll be depressed (laughs) because I know in and of myself, I have no answers in and of myself. I'm a negative Nelly. Is anyone else like me? (laughs) Where you're often prone to complaining about things that really don't need to be complained about, even in the good times. How much more times like these? And she said, if you look to the world, you'll be distressed. If you look within, you'll be depressed. But here's the good news. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. If you look at God, you'll be at rest. Because we see from the lessons, the perfect lessons we've learned from Jesus on the cross that literally God is always about a redemptive story. 
He'll use difficult circumstances and he'll use trials to bring about redemption for his people and for humanity because of what Jesus did on the cross. And it's no different than what another prophet, a Jewish prophet, a man named Isaiah said 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene. And in Isaiah 26, he said this, in that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. This is starting in verse one. We have a strong city. He, meaning God, sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. And may this be a moment where our nations are turned back to God for that perfect peace. And here's the important part. He said, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. That means I'm grabbing on for dear life and I'm fixing my thoughts on him. Doesn't matter what report comes, I'm gonna believe the report of the Lord. Doesn't matter what tragedy comes, I'm going to believe that God can bring something good out of this. And I'm gonna believe that I can be kept in perfect peace as my mind is stayed on him because he trusts in you. Isaiah went on to say, trust in the Lord, not just sometimes, but forever. Forever. For the Lord God is an everlasting rock. That means in good times and in difficult ones. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. And that's an interesting juxtaposition there. Because what we see from Isaiah's encouragement is that trials, like what we're going through today, can bring us low. And at times, we may not understand what God is doing through them. Our hearts, can, our hearts' cries can reflect some of the Lord's final words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet, this is the point of the message and the encouragement that we want to give you today. Yet, if we remember the perfect lessons taught, uh, taught to us at the cross about a perfect Savior, Jesus Christ, we will be kept in perfect peace as our minds are stayed on Him. So what are we to do? We're to repent of whatever sin we've been holding on to today, whether it be self-righteousness or rebellion of all sorts. The drunkenness, it's gotta go. The sexual immorality, it needs to go. The hatred and the lack of forgiveness, you can lay it down at the cross today. And the benefit of these things is as we repent of our sin, and believe the good news of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Not only that he went to the cross, but died and three days later was raised again for the forgiveness of our sins. Your faith in Jesus can make it a sure thing that as you walk with him, even through times such as these, you and I will be kept in perfect peace. So God bless you. We hope this encourages you. And please stand on the everlasting word and promises of God as we cry out, not my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
But my God, my God, thank you for providing my everlasting peace in Jesus' name. So thank you for joining us in our worship um, time today. And we'd like to end with a word of prayer. If you would, let's, uh, even where you are, bow your heads. God, we thank you so much for um, your constant everlasting goodness. And what we admit to you today, God, is that we don't know why all of this is going on or um, how this will turn out or even when this will end. But God, we know that through it all, you remain steady. You remain true. You remain on your throne. And you remain the one who is slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, who bless to a thousand generations those who would love and turn to you. And God, we're asking that in these moments, even as you've said, your mercies are new to us every morning, that God, you would have mercy on us all here in this nation and in the nations. God, that as we, as your word says, look to you, turn from our wicked ways and pray that God, you would heal our lands, that you would strengthen those who are on the front lines right now battling this disease that you would encourage their hearts, you would strengthen their families, you would keep them from the disease. And God, at the same time, you would use this shaking moment to show your mercy by turning people's hearts to faith and repentance, that we might be healed and then walk in your peace, both in this time and in times to come, both times that we feel like are known and those that are not. God, we just honor you and say that you're worthy of our praise, even in the midst of all of this. And we ask you to give us hearts that are continually lifted to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you have been watching today and felt the prick of the Holy Spirit in your heart. You might have been considering the things of God for a while, but really things made sense to you, maybe for the first time, or were reinvigorated for you today. And we want to give you an opportunity to seize this moment and to really respond to God. It's not enough that we hear the good news about Jesus. It's important that we respond to him in kind. He's making an invitation. We must receive it. And so today, if you receive the good news that Jesus Christ came as the perfect son of God to live the life that you should have lived and on that cross died the death for your wrongdoing and rebellion against God, that you should have died. And today say, I don't want death and hell, but I want to receive the forgiveness that he has for me. Then you can make a commitment to him today. And if you're making that commitment, would you pray this prayer with me? Father God, I thank you for your love for me. And I thank you for sending Jesus to live a sinless life in my place and on the cross die the death that I should have died. I acknowledge that because he was sinless three days later, you raised him from the dead so that I could have, through my repentance and turning away from my misdeeds, forgiveness of sins and new life in you. Make me a new person today. Forgive me, cleanse me, and show me how to walk with you and serve you, loving you the rest of my days in Jesus' name. You see, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so if you prayed that prayer, believing and confessing, the good news is today you're starting a new life. 
But what we want to do is give you an opportunity to get connected, to learn how to walk out this new life. And if you've made a commitment today, please visit us at secondcitychurch.com slash new life. There you'll find some information about how to take these next steps in Jesus, get connected to a God-fearing, God-loving community, and learn how to love him as he's loved you. So God bless you, and let's start this walk together.